Okay. So, um, again, it's really great to be with you. I think it's been a while since I've been here. Um, I think the last time I taught here, maybe I was co-teaching with Noah. I'm not sure. We did a night together one time. Anyways, um, I often don't know what I'm going to teach until I show up. Sometimes I do because they ask me for a title and description and I have to give them that. Uh, I love Against the Stream on these kinds of nights because they don't. <laughs> so that's nice. Um, usually something comes to me and usually I'm sort of called to do something. Uh, for me, it's also mm, not necessarily isolated, right? It's in connection and in relation in the sense that all of us throughout our days, throughout our lives, everything's in relationship. There's nothing that's not in relationship. We're always in connection with something and reacting to that or it's reacting to us. Yeah. So for me, I like uh, drama talks to also flow like that. So as I was eating my poke in the background, <laughs> I was thinking about uh, it a little bit. And um, I think tonight I want to share some more personal things with you, uh, the way my Dharma practice has evolved, um, maybe some of the ways, I'm, I'm not going to be able to share all of it, nor is all of it going to be relevant to you. Um, but there was a few sort of key points um, I want to discuss. And, you know, for me, I, I, maybe some of you know my background, I was a monk for nine years, I've taught here as a monk before, um, and uh, I've studied pretty rigorously in, in the Tibetan Buddhist traditions for the last 20 years. A lot of detailed philosophy, a lot of detailed um, visualization techniques and mantras and also practical things on the Four Noble Truths and things like that. Um, and there's a lot there, <laughs> meaning uh, often when I try to uh, impart these things in the West, unless people already have a ground and a, and a basis to take them in, it's often... Uh, confusing in a, in a not, not so helpful way, right? Just too many things to take in. And I was kind of thinking on it uh, also where there's a few things that I apply every day. There's a few practices, there's a few techniques or sets of, or ways of I think about myself in the world and I'm trying to work with every day. And these are actually not so complex. They're not so um, lofty or philosophically Sometimes with philosophical gymnastics in the Tibetan tradition. They're helpful, actually, but they just take time. Uh, you have to sit with them for a long time. Uh, but for me, sometimes the most helpful things are just a few simple things, and I'd like to share them with you tonight as I thought about them. I don't think they're the only things I apply every day, but there are a few of them. So just to read them off, and then I'll go into them a little bit, is... Um, First, to remember precious life. Second is to cultivate awareness. And third is to cultivate open questions and non-judgment. Yeah? So first is to remember precious life. Second is to cultivate awareness. Third is to cultivate open questions and non-judgment. So these are kind of, when I look at my days as I take the subway from New York City and Manhattan and Brooklyn, these are the things I'm applying uh, uh, more often than not, along with uh, the practice I just shared with you, more embodied practices of awareness, coming into the body and being with sensation, feeling, emotion, mood in the body, not the thinking one, right? These are some of my core practices. Um, so when I wake up in the morning, one of the first reflections I do on my in my practice is precious life, how precious life is, you know, how precious it is to have this body in life. And I know for me, this wasn't something I could relate to. This wasn't something I could connect to for most of my life. The majority of my life, my life did not feel precious. It felt more like a burden or um, at least something to have as much fun as I could before it's gone, right? In the path of Buddha Dharma, we actually, uh, there's an analogy uh, we have in, in, in the Tibetan tradition where it's like they call this precious human life um, like having treasure, uh, like a, like a poor person having treasure, uh, buried underneath their house without them knowing it. So they've lived in the house, <laughs> you know, they've lived in their house, uh, for many years, 
they, they have to do all kinds of things uh, to, to try to get money. It doesn't work. They remain in poverty. Yet all the while, they didn't know there was these jewels and treasure underneath their house that it could have completely taken care of them, right? And for a majority of my life, um, until I met Buddhism, I think I felt that way. There was this sense of, uh, I've struggled with low self-worth and, and kind of a feeling of unlovability most of my life. I've also struggled with um, a feeling I couldn't quite pinpoint until recently of more like hollowness, the sense that like, I need something always to validate me, but that's not always conscious. It's very subtle. It's just a feeling. Whether it's being validated with a brownie or validated by <laughs> by a person. It's it's kind of a similar feeling, right? And this reflection that I do every morning of thinking about how precious human 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 life is, how precious this life is, in relation to I have this opportunity to transform my mind. I have this opportunity to uh, uh, increase and cultivate awareness. I have this opportunity to actually uh, grow and transform as a human being. Not all beings have that necessarily, right? Meaning not all beings have the conditions for that. And so I would say those of us, as we come into contact with meditation, with Buddha Dharma, uh, with other tools and, and resources for for uh, transforming and finding resilience in our life, as well as finding what we would call uh, moving towards liberative practices in Buddhism or practices of enlightenment and liberation. Often we could sort of flounder for a long time in our own sort of pool of not recognizing how precious the opportunity that we have actually is, right? Not recognizing that each morning when we wake up and breathe in, uh, once again, it's it's a gift. It really is. It's 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 really precious and profound. Um, if we reflect on that moment, we may take our last breath when our breath goes out and just doesn't come in again, right? When we reflect on that kind of moment, just even right now, if you just briefly reflect on it, Right away, a feeling of, okay, yeah, I have this now. I have to use it, right? I have to use it in a beneficial way. I have to use it in a way that is going to bring uh, not only more happiness for myself, but also bring more benefit into the world. So we start to cultivate this attitude that's much bigger than us. We start to cultivate an attitude of actually wondering, how can I use this life in the best way, right? Is it enough to just have a bunch of fun experiences on the bird, <laughs> birds <laughs> and then that's it and then you die you know this is kind of a pervasive i would call it a poison in our society right now a kind of materialistic nihilism uh, that pervades a lot of our hearts uh, including mine sometimes and it's just not true right it's not true so this is the first thing I wake up and I cultivate. I think about what it means to have this this human birth, right? What does that mean? And and often I you know I could sum it up by saying we have just the right amount of messed up shit to deal with, you know, just the right amount of suffering to kind of kick us in the pants to be like, whoa, 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 like what's going on? We we gotta fix this, right? We gotta do something, right? I mean, we're all in this room for you know, most likely some kind of reason around that, right? So just enough of that, but not too much to where we're completely overwhelmed and can't do anything about it, meaning we, we lack freedom, right? So again, we're in this room or, or we're, we're interested in meditation because we have the freedom to practice it, right? We have the freedom to engage it. I'm not saying you're perfect at it, right? That takes time. So we have just the right amount of uh, uh, dissatisfaction, uh, painful experiences of life to kind of be fed up, but enough freedom to do something about it, right? So this is the quality of, of, of a human rebirth. I'm not going to go that far to say uh, everyone has this opportunity, and it's not really a comparison here. That's not what I'm getting into, just to be clear, if some of you are wondering. It's really about reflecting on on what you have, right? Including privileges we have, whether they're, whether we earn them or not, right? They're just, they are there, right? So, of course, this can become a practice of compassion as well. Like for me, <clears throat> when I watch like animal documentaries or something like that, you see how because of the conditions, how little they don't have this kind of freedom. Right? 
and it doesn't make them bad. I love fish. <laughs> right? I love dogs and cats. But we can see, like, if we watch, especially about, like, the Pacific Ocean or, you know, documentary on, on, on deep, deep sea stuff, <laughs> you see, like, mostly it's, a, it's about surviving or eating. And it's really, there's not that much else going on there. Um, you know, procreating, eating, surviving. As humans, that's not all we do. I, I find it really awful when people try to reduce humans to like just an animal process. Of course, we have things in common and we have animal processes as well, as well. But, um, it's not the same. Yeah. We have the ability to conceptualize in a very refined way. We have the ability, I'm going to get to in a second, of awareness, which is a, even more refined quality we have of the mind, right? And what the Buddha took advantage of. So the first is just recognizing this opportunity. Just, em- just enough suck, and just <laughs> right, just enough suck, and and just enough uh, uh, freedom to do something about it. And then it's <clears throat> recognizing how rare that is. And this is a little difficult, but in the traditional approach to this, uh, there, there's a there's a view of of past and future lives. That's how they reflect on the preciousness of this. But we could see, just if we look uh, right now, we don't have to go into any um, metaphysical things. We could just see how, how many animals are, you know, maybe we have 40 or 50 people in the room right now. How many animal, animals are just around and under us? Millions, you know, I'm, I'm talking about also insects in the ground and things like that, right? Millions who don't have that opportunity. So it's quite rare. Right, we have this. Just compared to numbers, just comparing that to the world, because it seems like a lot of people in the world. But actually, if you think about it, we're not the only beings here. There's way more of, of other kinds of beings. And so we, this is something we also have to think about, right? You don't have to believe me. It's something we have to reflect on. And then with that rarity, we have then the kind of opportunity to do something about it, right? So for me, this is... Um, this was a reflection I actually took into retreat for, for I, I, as a monk, I did a lot of uh, solitary retreat. And I took it into a, into a hundred day retreat, just this practice, just this contemplation, right? It was really hard because you run into shit to think about, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was really hard. Um, but it was really useful. Like the first week I was like, oh my God, I got to keep going on this, you know? And, and we have a way in the Tibetan tradition of meditating where we reflect we contemplate and we have kind of all kinds of points to reflect on and contemplate. We just let a very gentle reflection happen. And then when a feeling gets evoked, we think we, we focus on that feeling, right? In this case, a feeling of preciousness and rarity. And so after like a week or two or three, it just became a feeling. I didn't have to think very much about it and it's just there. And that's kind of remained with me to a certain extent, though, though not all the time. I still have to remember it in the mornings. Um, and it's something, um, why I'm sharing it with you is it's something that really transformed how I look at myself as, you know, instead of this kind of pitiful person who, uh, maybe was unlovable in some way, something else replaced that some other kind of joy. And, um, I won't say well-being, but just a sense of, of inner worth. Right. So, so I wanted to share that first one with you. So second, cultivate awareness, <laughs> This is probably the main one. So I like this phrase of uh, <clears throat> the Buddhist path. Awareness is really good to us in the beginning as we're learning to meditate, as we're like a fledgling meditator <clears throat> or a neophyte. It's good to us in the middle as we're developing some strength in meditation and it's becoming a little bit more familiar and easier. And it's good in the end as we start to approach uh, uh, an actual realization and we start to uncover our own nature. Uh, awareness is good in the end, right? And awareness here is um, something that's not a feeling. It's not a thought, right? But it is a part of the mind. So one way we could talk about mind is in four categories, just to, just to make it clear here. So we have a thinking part of the mind, which is we all know about, right? <laughs> it's what we're mostly, majority of our days are spent in. We have knowing which is just our ability to perceive. Like, for instance, you don't have to think there's a cell phone recording in, in front here. You could, just, you could just look at it and you know what it is, right? You don't have to consciously think that because you've familiarized with it. So knowing, perception, right? Then we have awareness, right? Which is kind of a type of knowing when we're known, right? 
So for instance, I'll give you an example. Everybody raise your hand, please. <laughs> now know your hand. That's awareness, right? So you put your hand. <laughs> so that's awareness, right? That quality you just came into contact with, knowing the hand, that's awareness, right? And so in meditation, that is essentially what we're cultivating. That is what we're uh, connecting with. That is what we're trying to strengthen. For instance, if we use the breath as an object, like we, do, we place our awareness there. So the awareness, so we can come into contact with that and we can sustain that awareness or maintain that awareness, right? And then later down the road, we also use awareness in other ways. The fourth quality, though, I didn't say is, is clarity, which I'm not going to go into tonight. That's more what we call the, the relative nature of mind. Just our ability to perceive or our potential to perceive. So awareness is really the key step to unraveling or sort of undoing uh, the predicament we're in from a, from a Buddhist perspective. The predicament the Buddha lays out in the first noble truth of dukkha, right? So how do we un unravel dukkha? We become aware of it. We look, we see, right? First, we maintain that awareness. And then we use that awareness to turn on to the mind, to turn on to the experience. So instead of constantly doing this and looking outwards for uh, validation, for existence, for having somewhere or a place to lay our foot and find a ground that we can be stable on, right? We look outwards. In the path of Buddhism, we look inwards, right? And here, look inwards is kind of also, um, it's not... It is literal and not literal at the same time, right? Because obviously we're also concerned with what's happening out there. But here's the question. Is what is what's happening out there any different in the sense like there's a perceiver here perceiving that, right? So this is a big question, Buddhism. I'm not going to go into it. I told you I wouldn't go into philosophy. But. <laughs> so anyways... So awareness is essentially that practice of connecting with that aspect. We could simply raise our hand, know it, and if you can maintain that awareness and you cultivate that awareness, that will eventually eventually lead you to liberation. Yeah, And if you watch, if you eventually turn that awareness into an observer that can watch experience, right, as we do in the four foundations of mindfulness, as we do in Vipassana practice, that can lead you to liberation. Yeah, So awareness is kind of the thing where we motivate for. So why do I think about my my precious human life? Because then I want to use that precious human life, right? To unravel the predicament I'm in, to uncover my own Buddha nature. That's what I personally want to do. That's what I advocate, obviously, if people are interested in the Buddhist path. And what's the practice to do that? Awareness, right? Not just awareness, because we also take awareness and we... We can become aware of compassion. We can, we become aware of our, our behavior, how we're showing up in the world. And so Buddhist ethics, uh, here aren't necessarily like a dogmatic or, um, uh, mm, what's the word? Authoritarian kind of order to like behave in a certain way. No, it's about seeing how, what am I, what am I cultivating? What kind of stance do I have in the world? So awareness, right? So we need awareness to do that. Otherwise it just becomes a rule. Like, okay, don't do this. So here, mindfulness and awareness become not only a training to look towards, but they also become a training of how we want to show up in the world, right? Because how are we going to present and build a stance of compassion if we're not aware of all the ways we hide from ourselves and others? If we're not aware of all the lenses uh, that we walk around with, right? So now the third quality. Cultivating open questions and non-judgment. So again, right, you can see there's an order here. How do we cultivate non-judgment without awareness? And how do we cultivate awareness without something uh, precious we want to employ in that process, right? So here, um, an open question means, I think it's pretty obvious, but I'll just say it. It means something where we don't have an answer for, and we can leave it as a running question. As I call it, uh, I have a, like a, a whole cabinet in my mind of running hypotheses, right? Just things I, I, most of them are just bullshit opinions about something. And yet, you know, right there, awareness can see 
oh, okay, there's my opinion. There's my judgment about somebody or something, right? Can I leave that as an open question? Can I leave that as a process as opposed to a closed door and an answer? Because the moment we close the door, we also close off our own growth. We also close off our own awakening to a certain extent, right? Right? And why? Because we have, we're right there, we blocked ourselves off from seeing a possible lens, right? And lens we can also talk about in the form of a bias, right? A lens is a type of bias, though not always in a negative way, right? So the path is for unraveling these lenses, all the ways we see the world and think it is exactly like that, right? So here there's no problem with appearance. Appearance happens. Appearance is... We can't get rid of appearance. It'll keep coming as long as we're alive, right? Yet the issue is not the appearance. The issue is our belief and clinging to that appearance as it is, right? And this is what binds us, right? Fundamentally, from a Buddhist perspective. And so when we ask an open question, when we choose to use awareness as a process of non-judgment, ah, so much beauty happens, right? So much beauty. I mean, just reflecting now, I, I can't think of so many instances, but I know when I'm really stuck and reified, in my judging mind about someone, right? You know, and judgment here isn't discernment. Judgment is really, I've made a conclusion, this is how it is, and it's not going to change. It's definitely like this. That's what I'm saying when I mean judgment. You know, it's a tricky word because in English, we we need the judgment not to run in the street when there's a bunch of cars, right? So we don't do Maybe let's just, for tonight's discussion, I'll put that into a category of discernment, discerning that. Where judgment's a definitive decision. And usually, for me, those definitive decisions are based on a bias. They're based on a certain lens, a certain way I'm not seeing. Where, and, and I would say they're also based on where I'm not in a moment of awareness, right? So open questions. So for me, this kind of, along with the practice I shared with you earlier, this forms uh, a lot of the basis for... Um, <coughs> What I personally work with, um, motivating, connecting with awareness, looking inwards, creating open questions and non-judgment with things that I see outwards, like perceptions, right? And leaving it, yeah. And life, excuse me, life is actually really fun when you do that, you know? It's quite fun. Just think about it. I mean, the moment we've wrapped our mind around something and we've created it as, this is how it is. It's just that. So many emotions arise for that. If we, if we don't like it, aversion comes. If we do like it, craving comes, right? Clinging comes. And when we get hooked to either one of those, we suffer. We suffer. So this is a really, really key thing to think about. And it's not a, uh, it's not a, we should reflect on it a lot. I mean, I'm saying it as a talk, but I'm still reflecting on this. Is that the way it is? You know, I'm still reflecting on this every day. And of course, I get caught all the time, every moment. But you know, we have those small successes. We have those small moments where maybe after a, a really nice sit or something, you know, we walk in the kitchen and instead of yelling back at someone yelling at us, we're like, oh, okay, thanks. <laughs> instead of like immediately jumping in to reply to that Facebook argument, we're like, okay, hmm. you know, like that, right? So open question, awareness. And out of that, uh, maybe I, we need a little force step here. Out of that, wh what's the product? Compassion. A willingness and, a, and an actual ability to put ourselves in the shoes of others. To see that others' experience are not necessarily our own, right? And to also come into uh, uh, a willingness to bear witness to their pain, to bear witness to their dissatisfaction, to bear witness to where they get clean, to where they have aversion, to bear witness to where they lose awareness or judge and close down on something, right? Um, and slowly, slowly, we start to move into the perspective of how all the Buddhas see us. And this is a perspective that um, it really affected me. I, I only read this like two weeks ago. I had heard it a long time ago, but I heard it in a teaching two weeks ago of that... Um, this perspective that, that a Buddha, meaning an awakened being, someone, you know, if we assume that can happen, right? 
a being who's awakened from suffering. When they see a, a person who is suffering, meaning uh, someone who's a sentient being or still in this process of samsara or, or circling, they don't see a messed up person. They actually see the potential for their awakening. Right? It's quite a, quite a beautiful thing. And I was really thinking about it. Of course, this is a, this is more conceptual what I'm talking about in the sense of like we're building a process where maybe we move into an open moment with someone or an open question where compassion can arise for their experience. And in that very moment, we can see their potential and not them as a screwed up, messed up person who's acting in a way we don't like or whatever, right? So this is a big question. What happens? What 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 shifts when we start to see people like that? When we start start to see those around us, those we like, those we dislike, those we're, we don't know or who are strangers. When we start to see them that underneath all of what appears to be wonderful or totally messed up, right? Something we don't want to be around. Underneath, there may be a possibility that this person also has this potential for awakening, right? And right in there lies their deep inner value and worth beyond how they act, right? Beyond how we view them. It's quite a beautiful thing. I tried it the other day. It was really hard, you know? I'm an extremely judgmental person, like really judgmental. Today I was like, oh, I don't know about these people in Venice. I like New Yorkers a little bit more now. <laughs> and then New York, I'm like, I don't know about these New Yorkers. Because you know? I'm from California, so. And I was like, I don't know about these New Yorkers. All the time, just judging, 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 in my mind. But, you know, for, for a minute, I tried, I looked at a few people, and I'm like, ah, oh, this is a Buddha. Like, just, just had that thought. This is a Buddha in front of me. For sure, you know. And something, oh, you know, everything released in me. Like, some kind of joy came. Want to hug the person <laughs> with their consent? <laughs> so, anyways, um, let's do some Q and A, or just we can have a little back and forth. So, those are my three or four principles I just wanted to share with you from my heart. Um, yeah, if you guys have anything or anything you've been ruminating on, ruminating on throughout the talk. Analyst Wilfred Dion suggested um, that we don't think thoughts, but rather we have thoughts, and that requires us to think. Mm. Um, <laughs> can there be awareness without a thought that precedes it? Can there be awareness without a thought? Yes. <clears throat> yes, because awareness is another quality of mind that's not thought, right? So then it's saying you can have awareness without a thought that precedes it. Because awareness is not a thought. Yeah. Yeah, and so it's that's why it's so key in, in the practice of meditation. Because we're not practicing to not have thoughts, just to be clear about that. We're practicing to become aware of thoughts. So we're actually shifting or changing the relationship to the thinking mind, where instead of being completely hijacked by it all the time, we're having to reject it, right? It can just be there. So for instance, in... In certain lineages of Tibetan Buddhism, we have wonderful metaphors for this. Like, you probably heard them, like the clouds in the sky, right? Like sort of a practitioner starts to relate to their mind and their thoughts. Just like clouds moving. It's like whatever, man. They know there's a sky back there. Clouds can move. And it doesn't bother them at all. There's even a phrase in uh, 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 also where they say, Dharmakaya means enlightened mind. They say the more thoughts, the more Dharmakaya. So it's like a little contrary to like kind of what we normally think. Because we think, oh shit, I don't want my thoughts. They're awful. Right? They're, they're always distracting me from my meditation. But actually, we can change up how we... This isn't your question, sorry, I'm elaborating on it. <laughs> we, we can change up how we view this because when we're training an awareness, like when we're training this maintenance of awareness or otherwise samatha practice, right? Or, or samadhi, we're just training in, in this main maintenance, right? Every momentary nowness with awareness. The training happens because we're rubbing up against something. It's actually a beautiful thing when you think about it. So, you know, I, I, I used to get so frustrated because it was like, just every thought that comes, it's resistance, fighting, trying to go back to the breath, fighting, go back to the breath, you know? And by the time I'm finished practicing, I'm more exhausted than when I started, right? <laughs> Sound familiar? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's very common. So 
Rather, I learned over time, it's more shifting the relationship to that. So just by the very fact that the thought distracts distracts me, it means I can train in maintaining that awareness. It's like a, a knife and it's sharpening stone, right? So as the, the knife has resistance against that, it sharpens that knife. And both over time, what happens also is the knife wears out and the stone wears out, meaning you know, awakens is another way we can say. So it's actually a beautiful thing. And so it also shifted my relationship to like uh, always demonizing the thinking mind. You know, I think we have sometimes a pop culture view of meditation. It's like, well, how do I get rid of my thinking mind? Or how do I like make this settle so much that I, I'm just p- blissed out or peaceful? And I think it's completely not helpful actually because it misses the point because it's, I mean, maybe it's helpful in the beginning, but then over time, it kind of becomes a, it becomes another thing to do. It becomes another thing of, I'm, I'm a perfect meditator or I'm not a perfect meditator. So how do we move into all the flaws of our habits and experience and move into, oh, okay, wow, interesting, that's a thought. You know, in, in Vipassana practices, in, in, for instance, Tibetan Buddhism and also in, in Theravada and the Third Foundation, you actually, you turn that awareness to watch the thought. And you just watch like you're watching a movie. It's kind of fun. You know, you watch the movie of the thought moving. Ah, okay. Where did the thought come from? Where does it abide? Where does it go? And you just watch. Then eventually you see, oh, thoughts are like nothing. I take them so seriously, but they're like nothing. They're just like clouds moving in the sky or like waves on an ocean. Yeah. So, so I think, uh, I don't know what you originally asked, but <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what I got to say about it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I like Q&A more because sometimes more stuff comes out. So if you don't be shy. Um, One of the things you said when you first started was, you know, I wouldn't want to be in a world of one. Yeah. Which... I thought it was really interesting, especially because there's all this talk of, you know, being all one and yeah. that there's sort of non-separateness. And I think it's a challenge to hold the non-separateness. You know, you're saying I have these judgments about people. And I think when I think of Buddhism, of which I know very little, um, there's a sense of attachment and aversion and attachment and aversion seems to be what directs most of our action. Um, and I think... I guess the question is sort of how do you move through life and particularly relationships with other beings, whether it be like a relationship of a close personal person or someone you meet on the street or any of this without that attachment and aversion motivating your every action? Because in so many ways, I mean, that's how we choose to to do everything. And I think that there's a lot of a sense of almost that you said, you know, nihilism is like, of not being, of like letting life just happen to you, you know? And I, I think that it's everyone's questions tend to be very revealing of themselves, but I think that push and pull is almost what propels us yeah. forward. So how do you move without, you know, like how do you do in life or find your path or find connection without some attachment or aversion being the thing that moves you? Yeah. If I figure that out, I think I can make a lot of money. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Um, yes, I mean, that's a big question. And it's an essential question, like when we're talking about this material and, and Buddhism in general. So what would move us that's not uh, uh, what we usually call like a klesha, mm-hmm. meaning a disturbing emotion, mm-hmm. attachment, aversion, jealousy, pride, etc. Um, what I would say is this is a process, like a long process of related to the what I already brought up in these points, right? A long process of, of recognizing our opportunity, how precious that is, and, and the power of that opportunity. Recognizing and connecting with awareness. Because then we become we become conscious. You know, we can actually form intention as, a, as opposed to a lot of hidden and unconscious motivations that are happening all the time, right? And then, I'll get there in a second. <laughs> we, we could dialogue, though. It's a, it's a big question. I like this question. Then... And so it's cultivating that. And then where do we aim that awareness, right? One way I talked about it was aiming at it at open questions and working with judgment. Another way we could talk about it is aiming it at um, 
practices of compassion and loving kindness and care, right? But not in and of themselves, more for opening up into how reality actually is, right? Because we are connected. When I said, uh, I don't want to live in a world of one, I meant I don't live, want to live in a world of individualism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where it's like I'm cut off from the whole, right? Because we're not, essentially. But we have the illusion that we are. I can speak for myself. I often have the illusion that I am, right? Um, and so the path is to shift, to first recognize that illusion and then shift it. And then the motivation becomes not self-driven, but communal driven, and then eventually other driven. But yet it's a tricky thing because it's not other driven where then you we're also, we're a doormat. It's, it's other driven, but there's wisdom underneath that, right? So, in the Buddhist path, we never leave wisdom and compassion separate. They're always a unit because wisdom without compassion is like very dry and compassion without wisdom can become quite stupid, like doing things that, you know, trying to fix something like uh, with tape that needs glue and cement right, or whatever. So, yeah, so I think it's it's shifting that perspective. And that's a, that's a long process for most of us. Not long meaning like forever, but it's a process that we have to engage with and show up every day. Um, and, and try, but, but it's possible and it can happen. And slowly we recognize that, that attachment and aversion that we were basing our mm, function in the world off of is incredibly binding. And it's a lot of suffering for ourselves. So one way is to kind of first recognize that, oh, this is suffering for me. That works for some people. The other way is to recognize, oh, this is suffering for others, right? So it depends on the person. We would say it just depends on their capacity and proclivities. Some people, maybe it's going to be easier for them to reflect, oh, yeah, yeah, I see how this impacts my friends and family, and I want to work on that, right? Some, For me, it's more like, okay, yeah, I feel how I'm bound by this. Make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So it, it flips, and then it's like, um, so altruism becomes our, comp- our our base. Altruism becomes where we move from. Actually, it's it's way more functional in the world. Mm-hmm. Way more functional. You can get a lot done with altruism. I look at, for instance, when I'm, I don't just say this to name drop, but, you know, Dalai Lama, I was ordained by him as a monk, and he's one of my teachers. I don't know him personally that well. Uh, but... Um, if you look at his life, you know, and what he's done with it and still does with altruism, he's like one of the busiest people I know, you know, he's like, and he's like, he's really old at this point. And, you know, and he still is out there traveling like he's in his thirties. <laughs> and so, so yeah, you can see when it becomes way more joyful from our perspective and the actual benefit we can impart is way more. It's way, way more. So this is the, a little bit of the trick because we live in systems these days that actually are, um, they prize, like they thrive off of attachment and aversion. So that's the challenge because we have to, we have to interrupt that first here and then we can start to interrupt it outside by our very being, right? It's quite powerful. Like the Buddha, if you read his life, you know, if you see his life, how he, how he interrupted the dynamics, social dynamics and things in India at the time, it was just by his being. He didn't do like a lot of like big proclamations and things like that. Even the monk uh, Vinaya, which is the monastic discipline, he didn't make it originally. It came out of people doing funny things, you know, like kissing monkeys and stuff. What? Like, <laughs> yeah, and then he was like, "No, you can't do that. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe don't do that." Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, a good question. This is a big one because it's like it's like the platform we're we're jumping off from, right? And that, yeah, it becomes an even bigger question when you ask. Okay, if there's you didn't ask this, so I'll ask it. When there's not self, what is doing that? Yeah, that's a bigger question. But that I mean, like if you've then released yourself from this cushion call yeah. of of attachment and aversion, you're operating from a space of altruism. Exactly. And it's sort of an intrinsic opening into what is, and you're no longer the sort of, the one doing the doing, it's coming out of you intrinsically. Then, you know, 
I guess it's the question of where does you know like where is that coming from? What is that? What is the ground of that being? Yeah. Yeah. In the Mayana tradition, we call it Buddha nature. So this is the, the, the nature of all sentient beings that is a potential or seed within them. And that's something that's already there. It's not something we have to ask Buddha for, a god, or go buy it in Santa Monica. <laughs> it's, it's just there. It's there. It, it, but the problem is it's latent right now. So we have to create the conditions for it to come out and, and, and unveil, unveil it. And so that's what we would say from that perspective. But that's, that's, that's a, a, a that came out later, meaning meaning it's it's not it's implicit within the early translations or the early Buddhism. It's implicit, but it's not direct, because yeah. they more talk about the extinguishment, right? Not what happens after the extinguishment. It's the extinguishment of, of suffering, uh-huh. yeah. And so then, what happens when it when suffering is extinguished? That's the big question, and so that's where this perspective that intrinsic is that Buddha nature, and intrinsic to that is altruism how you beautifully said. Yeah. And so that arises naturally. So we would say that is the, the, uh, uh, the expression of the nature of reality, but it's also not a thing. That's why it becomes so tricky. It's not like something you can sink your teeth into right. and say, ah, oh, this is me being compassionate right. or altruistic or that's why it's so tricky in, in a sense. Cause even in the Buddhist world, we kind of like, Oh, be compassionate. And it's like, okay, I'm going to go be compassionate. And then it's, it's good. We should try and in just relative ways and, and try to help. But, uh, uh, in, in, in a condition world, often we can't fix a problem with a, with just a, a normal solution because the solution creates another problem. Right. Yeah. That's why we go to this bigger view, macro view in Buddhism. Really good. Um, so you're just touching on like building passion. What are um, those few areas you kind of spoke about, like open questions, you know, passion judgment? What are some specific like practices for sitting that uh, would be compassion? Yeah, the simplest one I think is just to look at someone and try to put yourself in their shoes, you know, or learn about someone's life. Um, like, do the work on it. You know what I mean? Um, not assuming, but maybe ask them, talk to them and reflect on what it might be like, right? We're not going to know exactly. So basically, empathy, you know, connecting to empathy. Um, in the the traditional forms of like the four Brahma Viharas, you know, we reflect, or the we call it the four measurables in the Mayana tradition. Um, you directly reflect, may this person or individual or group or whatever be free of suffering. May they be free of whatever ails them. So we actually put ourselves in the aspirational mode of wishing them freedom from that. So that sounds kind of, you know, I think sometimes it can strike us as too simple and not direct because we're not out there. Like, why don't you just go out there and help them? Right. And and we can, right. That's perfectly fine. But aspiration is something we don't ignore on the Buddhist path. It's actually a very powerful thing because aspiration is, uh, uh, mm, what's the word? When something grows kind of exponentially, it's, yeah, expansive. That's easy. <laughs> Thank you. No, no, no. It's better than what I was coming up with. So <laughs> it's expansive. Yeah. And so I used to ignore aspiration a lot because I, because we were kind of doers and we're producers in this culture. So like if we don't see it, it doesn't exist. Meaning if you can't put on a t-shirt, it doesn't exist. Right. <laughs> so this model is, is useful. I think in a sense, like, um, because of course it helps and it does relieve suffering in the world. But again, it's getting into this conundrum of problem, solution, problem. And it also sometimes lacks wisdom, right? Because we often don't know what the best thing is to do. So here in the Buddhist path, we spend a lot of time aspiring. And it's not that that aspiration is just then you don't do anything. Of course you do something. If, if, if somebody needs your help, there's a situation, you just act. But I would say because we've grown our aspiration and that's expanded, expanded, become expansive, that action will just come, right? It'll just come naturally. And also it will not come with a condition to it of like, oh, I need to go get like a smoothie. Like, sorry, I need to take a break and go get a smoothie, right? Like it won't come with that condition. 
because that aspiration has kind of come to its fruition, or at least we're in the process of that. You know what I'm saying? I do. I think growing aspiration is going to be important because it tends to be the people that I'm like super frustrated with, yeah. not wanting to even kind of like they're in my life, but I don't want them to be. Yeah. I'm um, trying to like cultivate some of this compassion towards just so I'm not once again beating myself up by the way I'm then like man why are you being so shitty to that person yeah five minutes later yeah exactly and so I think for some of us in those types of situations the first step is the first practice I introduced going to the body and and, and acknowledging what we're feeling so we're not bypassing what we're feeling and what our need is in the situation and then from there once we've kind of worked with that a little bit, then there's the opportunity to ask this question of what what may they be suffering from? Like when I see a really angry person, it's harder when they're angry at me, I'll admit, but much harder. But when I see a really angry person, I feel bad for them actually. Like I, not like poor guy, like pity, compassion. Like I want them to be free from that anger because right? because I know how much anger sucks. Like I don't like feeling angry. So it really comes from this embodied feeling of, Oh yeah, I know how that feels and it sucks, right? So, so that empathy can come and then compassion. So it's really like that, that we use compassion a lot more than empathy on the Buddhist path, but empathy, empathy can be a tool as well. Yeah. I would appreciate if you could share a bit more, because I don't know about the Buddhist uh, commentary or a way to process the difference between what I would call the feminine and masculine. Yeah. Not so much male and female, but the feminine being feelings and the masculine being thoughts. And uh, the things that you keep talking about that I really like. It's a big topic. Yeah. I'll give you guys a taster from the Vajrayana tradition. Because I think they have some of the most refined approaches of talking about the feminine and masculine. So Feminine is actually, uh, in Vajrayana Buddhism, is represented by emptiness or openness, by space, essentially, right? Like a, an availability. Maybe that's a good word. The masculine is, is actually, uh, believe it or not, the compassion aspect, like the aspect of, of engage, engagement, right? And so um, on the path, again, we can see like what we're trying to do is actually unify these as an individual practitioner, right? We're trying to unify these aspects of wisdom and compassion, or sometimes compassion, we talk about uh, wisdom and method, because method just means any activity, right, of, of what we would call like awakened or virtuous activity, something that's going to bring benefit for someone, for ourselves and others, right? So without the space and availability, there's no way to do that in a, in a constructive way because it becomes really refined and limited, right? And the space without the activity is just space. It's just availability, but no, like we were just having this conversation, but no altruist, like no altruistic movement. So what's the most profound is that we view these as an actual unity. So we were talking about uh, Buddha nature and, and sort of this intrinsic, uh, we usually call it basic goodness or intrinsic goodness within us. That, that is a, a potential uh, that we can water and grow. Um, but it's also, I would say, we uncover more. So we would say within that uh, potential, these are already a unity. They're not separate, right? They're already a unity. It's a matter of just bringing them out. And the Buddhist path, it's sort of, we're, right now we're kind of stuck with this very clumsy way of having to do them separately because of the conceptual mind. You know, we have to connect with space. And then as a beginner, you know, myself included, it's hard to connect with compassion and have those be a unity right away. Then we practice compassion, right? And over time, they start to, we start to, they start to blend. We start to see them unify and connect more and more. And that is the, that's how, that's one way how we know our path of practice is becoming liberative because they start to unify more and more because they seem so separate at first. Meaning, it's actually kind of very related to your question uh, and your, your awesome statement there, too, of, um, sorry, I just lost my train of thought. Damn. 
went into the feminine side. <laughs> it's hopefully it becomes available again. Anyways, yeah, I just lost my thought. But yeah, I think that's enough. Yeah. You can you can say more if you, if you need. Well, it's what I like about it is I'm trying to identify with the partnership. The the union, the unification. Yeah. Yeah. And how to balance that when obviously being feminine, it kind of that comes more easily. But I recognize both sides. And yeah. some of the flip-flop, like how do I how do I like embrace that? Yeah, and I, I would say, yeah, on this, on Buddhist path, it's just, we have no choice. We have to kind of clumsily go along with these practices. And it's sort of like, we're doing this duty of washing a window that's already clean. Yeah. But we're going about the actions anyways. Because we ha- we're we not convinced that the window's clean. Yeah. It's essentially what's going on. It's yeah. like, how do I allow the Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, that's it, actually. There's uh, there's so many beautiful poems written in the Mahamudra and Dzogchen traditions in Tibetan Buddhism on that. If we fully know how to let be, it's all right there from these perspectives. And it sounds overly overly simplistic, but yeah, I I didn't believe that before, but I'm starting to believe that. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Got a few more minutes. Uh, maybe five more minutes. Um, as we go about developing equanimity uh, and letting be, as it were, how how do you uh, keep from becoming complacent or just apathetic in general? It's like, okay, that is what it is. You know, maybe I can help, maybe I can't. Yeah. And, and you sit and thought about when it's like, well, or or it's like, do I even bother uh, evoking change anywhere? Yeah. Like, she is and he is as they are. I have compassion for that. So what else? You're totally, that's a really, I, I struggle with that question almost every day. Yeah. It's, it's a tough one. Because it's sort of the basic fundamental perspective from the, the, the first noble truth is that um, the world isn't fixable. It's, it's a hard pill to swallow. Um, we really like the idea of it being fixable. And then as we move further in to, to, to the path and different sutras the Buddha taught uh, uh, and disciples later remembered, it's sort of like, well, who cares? I'm still going to go out and try to fix it, even though it's not fixable. So it's sort of like, I'm trying to remember this phrase of one of my friends who's a teacher. Sort of we... With, with, with a burning broken heart for others where we bear witness with compassion to their suffering. We want them to be free from that suffering. We, we know we can't end it directly for them completely. They have to do that work, yet we try. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's a really interesting conundrum. And usually we, we put this within the conundrum of, of, the, the, of like a bodhisattva's broken heart. You know, this is what a bodhisattva is. It's someone who's pledged to uh, awaken all sentient beings knowing there's not an end to sentient beings. Okay. In one way, you'd think this person's kind of stupid, you know? <laughs> like, what do they sign up for? But it's actually... When, <laughs> when it's put in context, you see how profound a path it is uh, uh, for engagement and for, of course, our own awakening as well. <laughs> So there has to be some type of joy, or I don't know, some type of good feeling to uh, to you know perpetuate this. Yeah, yeah, that's where I think it, it. The first step is 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 our own our own basis. Like that's why it's sort of like we do have to eat first. Most of us, right? We do have to have a snack before we we go out, uh, you know, to feed the hungry. Right. That, that's the majority of us. Some of us, maybe not, but that's the majority. And that means working with all of our own hangups, all of our own trauma, our own wounds. Um, in my case, anxiety, low self-worth, unlovability, all those kinds of things. It means healing some of that because 
if we don't have the joy with inside of us of, of recognizing this first step I said of our own precious opportunity, mm-hmm. we're not going to recognize it in others. Yeah. You know, I notice in my mind when I'm not aware of this precious opportunity I have uh, with this human life. And, you know, now we got in this conversation on Buddha nature of the, that I have this nature that can I can, you know, bring about with practice. Um, when I'm not reflecting on that, I notice I do judge others more. And I and I and I do uh, uh, what's the word box them in, you know, in a certain perspective or, or judgment. So. So, yeah, or I should say not. It's more like when I forget right? when I forget that I'm worthy, uh, then I, it's, it's much easier to, to demean someone and, and not see the worth in them. So I think it's like that's the first step coming into our own primordial worth, dare I say. Yeah, something like that. Our own primordial worth that then begins to reflect. And there's a joy in that worth. There's an incredible joy. And then as our practice flowers, as awareness flowers, and we're able to connect with it more easily. There's a joy in that too, because our clashes go down. Our attachment and aversion start to lessen. And so this is where I think we do, there is a, a little bit of a struggle in the beginning because it's a pretty uphill battle to get to a point where, to get to a point where we're getting a, enough of a taste, enough of a, as one Tibetan Lama, Lama Yeshi used to say, we, we need chocolate first. You need, a, you need a little bliss from the practice, right? Otherwise, we're going to have no joy to move forward. <coughs> and so that's important, you know, and then also important not to get stuck in that, that bliss. But it's important to have it because then we move forward. And for me personally, I've noticed I think that's connected to an amount of personal healing as well as um, finding the joy in practice. And so that might mean sometimes like if we really enjoy a certain practice, do it. You know, and we don't enjoy a, a certain practice, just maybe let that go for a little while. But keep it in your glass cabinet in the living room. So you have to walk by it once in a while. You know what I mean? Good question. All right, so I think I'm going to end there. But this is a. Thank you so much. Those are rich questions. I really appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. So. Okay. <laughs> Uh, I just like to do a little bit of dedication at the end. <clears throat> what this means is we're going to take all of the <laughs> the the goodness we've cultivated inside of ourselves. Uh, dare I say, kind of connecting into our own Buddha nature and trying to bring that potential out. And we're going to uh, uh, share that. Right? We're, we're not going to hold on to it. We're going to actually share it. So, if you don't like this visualization, you can just do it in another way if you'd like. So, closing our eyes, just coming down into the body once again. We're going to imagine all of our own (laughs) inner awakening, compassion, loving kindness, all of the effort from coming here tonight, sitting, practicing, all of that positive energy, positive energy and momentum that's come out of this, no matter if we see it or not. We imagine as a glowing light in the center of our heart, in whatever color you wish, And we're going to imagine that light growing bigger and bigger, filling our body with blissful warmth, compassion, joy, equanimity, wisdom. And that light is something so profound, expansive, that it can't be held within the body alone. So it begins to emanate out of us. First touching the others in this room here, as we rejoice in their practice, as we rejoice in their effort in coming here, sitting, listening, contemplating. And our shared positive energy, positive virtue and merit begins to mingle, forming a communal light that begins to expand beyond the room. And as it touches each and every sentient being it comes into contact with, it relieves their suffering, providing them with whatever they wish. And we're offering all of our goodness to them. 
And this continues to expand, filling Santa Monica, Los Angeles, moving out into the ocean, to Central South America, North America. And eventually this moves across the entire world and into the universe. Infinite, expansive, spacious. We just let be and rest in that spaciousness for a brief moment. <laughs> 